it is this kind of brazen whitewashing that is happening in the name of Herbert Quant or Ferry Porsche, where you have the BMW Foundation, Herbert Quant. Today, mind you, this is a global, this is a massive global foundation. There's a lot of grantees in, in the United States, Canada, United Kingdom, mainland Europe, all over the world, from India to Africa, South America. We're maintaining a foundation in the name of Herbert Quant with the motto, Inspire Responsible Leadership, on the basis of Herbert Quant having rescued BMW from bankruptcy in 1959, but leaving out the fact that he planned, built, and dismantled a sub-concentration camp in Nazi-occupied Poland in late 1944, early 1945, that he had the responsibility over thousands of forced enslaved laborers in Berlin battery factories, including hundreds of female concentration camp captives from Auschwitz and, and Sachsenhausen, that he exploited forced laborers and, and prisoners of war at his own private estate near Berlin, and that he acquired companies uh, selling from Jews in France. The question that's driving my book and the argument that's driving my book is, is far more a moral one uh, rather than a, a legal one. It is an argument in favor of historical transparency. Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law, the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie. And that was journalist and author David de Jong discussing one of Germany's wealthiest family dynasties that he covers in his book, Nazi Billionaires. During our conversation, Mr. de Jong goes into more depth about each of the German families covered in his book and the criteria that each had to meet to be included. He also gives his thoughts on how policy decisions during the vacuum years of 1945 to 1950 aided in the continuity of power structures from the Third Reich into post-war Germany. How business leaders like Ferry Porsche publicly carried on their SS member mentality decades after the war. How the ignorance or sidestepping of war crimes by the heirs of Germany's pro-Nazi tycoons may foster historical distortions. And how best to attain historical transparency with the example being given of Germany's second wealthiest family, the Rymans, their unique history of Nazi and Jewish ancestry, and their current proactive efforts to create a positive path forward through the Alfred Landecker Foundation. Mr. de Jong closes with sharing about how his family's experience in the Holocaust has made him mindful of history and made him more convinced that he wanted to get these stories out. And how his definition of justice has evolved during the research of Nazi billionaires. David DeYoung, welcome to Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Stephanie. It's a pleasure. Would you start with an overview of Nazi billionaires and what inspired you to write this book now? You know, Nazi billionaires is a book about five German business business dynasties, which are still relevant in global business today. Um, They, you know, of the five families, you know, what they control BMW, brands like BMW, Porsche, Volkswagen. And, you know, I looked into the book or to read the questions I started out with were you know how did these men get involved with the with the with hitler and the nazi regime how did they 
profit and benefit from it? Uh, how did they get away with their crimes? And how are they dealing with it today? But what really inspired me to write the book was when, you know, when I was working as a reporter at Bloomberg News, um, I was on this investigative team, which, which reported on um, family businesses, family-owned companies. Um, and I was asked to, to cover the German-speaking countries um, because, you know, I'm, I'm native Dutch. Um, even though I was initially hired as, as a reporter covering North America for a team. So from New York, I would, you know, spend one month a year between Thanksgiving and Christmas in, 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 in the German-speaking countries, in the bureaus there at Bloomberg as Germany, Switzerland, Austria. And what I came back with were these stories which mixed the financial and the historical. But what I particularly found was that companies like BMW and Porsche and the families that control them, which and the families particularly that are purporting to have reckoned with, you know, the Nazi history and the Nazi crimes or the third, you know, the crimes perpetrated during the Third Reich, um, pretending to have reckoned with them and actually are whitewashing them, or at least the legacy of their patriarchs, of their founders, of their saviors, um, pretending to have reckoned with them, but in, in fact, whitewashing them through global foundations, through media prizes, to corporate headquarters, to academic chairs, professorships, etc. And that was really the reason to write this book, to bring these stories to a global audience. Do you see that argument uh, facilitating an aspect of historical justice? Yes, I do. I do. I mean, for historical reconstruction or justice to be done. Uh, you know, I would I would argue that, you know, moral moral reconstruction justice is is, is to wronging rights is, is the largest factor of that even more so than, than, than financial compensation, in my opinion. It is acknowledging what has transpired in, in, in the past, during history, or in history. You know, one only learns from history by, by showing the good and the bad. You know, by showing the good, one, one learns nothing of it. And wasn't, one doesn't really take responsibility for one's history or one's actions. For the five families that you honed in on, would you give an overview of perhaps each of them and, and what it was that you found so egregious about their past and how it linked to the future that that you saw the thread was there? Sure. So to your first question, the five families I chose are those that are still relevant in global business today. And it also have, you know, a small group of shareholders, relatively small families or rel relatively small dynasties with like two branches. So where the economic power is most controlled in, you know, writing, uh, if I had picked a family that had 600 or 700 shareholders or, you know, a, a group of shareholders of 600, 700 people that see, still control family conglomerate today, you know, the, the power would have been too diffuse. It doesn't really make, you know, these, there's marginal economic powers, but 
when economic power is so concentrated into individuals, you know, these people really control swaps of the global economy. So that's why I picked those fives. That's one of the reasons I picked those fives, in addition to them being relevant in global business today. Secondly, they all had to qualify, or the patriarchs had to qualify, uh, in, in order to be able to be included for the book, they had to, you know, engage in mass, you know, in, in Aryanizations and expropriations of Jewish-owned assets or uh, businesses in Nazi-occupied territories or German-occupied territories during World War II. They had to do mass exploitation, had to engage in mass exploitation of, of, of forced enslaved labor, and also partly have engaged in, in mass productive, uh, production of, of, of armaments. Um, now, four to five families that I wrote about, or the five dynasties that I wrote about, the first one, the main one, truly really the red thread of the book, is the Quan dynasty, of which two heirs today control BMW, or the BMW group, which includes the brands BMW, Rolls-Royce, and Mini. But their patriarchs, Gunter Quant and his eldest son, Herbert, led uh, the Quant group during the war, which is assembly of, of, of companies, mainly a massive battery company called AFA and a, a armaments company called DWM. And together they exploited, you know, almost 60,000 forces slave laborers during the Second World War. They mass expropriated Jewish-owned businesses as well as businesses in, in Nazi-occupied territories, and they mass and they were some of the largest weapons producers in, in the Third Reich. Secondly, there was uh, there's a, a Flick dynasty, which are the former controlling shareholders of Daimler-Benz, and their patriarch Friedrich Flick controlled the largest steel, coal, and weapons conglomerate during the Third Reich. Um, estimates of the number of forced enslaved laborers he exploited in his conglomerate are around 100,000 people. Um, and he was also the largest um, profiteer in private business of Aryanizations and expropriations. Adding to that, he was also the arguably the largest uh, arms producer in, in private business. And he's the one example in my book of somebody who was indicted and convicted at, um, uh, at the, during a Nuremberg trial, the Flick trial. Thirdly, there's a von Fink family whose patriarch co-founded Allianz in Munich Re, um, and a private bank called Merck Fink. There, the patriarch um, got to Aryanize the Rothschild and the, the Rothschild private bank, which was the largest private in Vienna, which was the largest private bank in Austria at that time, as well as the Dreyfus Bank, private bank in Berlin. Um, and fourthly, there's the Porsche Pierre clan, which today controls the Volkswagen Group, which um, is the largest car manufacturer in the world, which controls brands like not only like Volkswagen and Porsche, 
but also Audi, Bentley, Lamborghini, Seat, and Skoda. Um, their patriarch, of course, Fernand Porsche, as well as his son-in-law, Anton Pierre. Of course, not only Fernand Porsche uh, convinced Hitler to uh, put the Volkswagen into production, but subsequently, he and Anton Pierre led the Volkswagen factory complex during the Second World War, where not only did not, weren't any Volkswagens ended up being produced, but it was turned into, it was retooled into one of the largest armaments factories in the Third Reich, where tens of thousands of forced enslaved laborers were exploited to produce arms. In addition to that, they pushed out their, their co-founder uh, of the Porsche company, Adolf Rosenberger, who was Jewish, out of the company, out of the Porsche car design company, um, and Aryanized his stake um, in the company in 1935. On top of that, Ferry Porsche, who later, who after the war designed the first Porsche sports car, was it was Ferry Porsche's only son, um, you know, was a voluntary applicant and entry uh, and uh, voluntary applicant to the SS um, and entered the SS in 1941. And then fifthly, there's the Edgar family, which is a con conglomerate mainly known uh, in Europe, not so much in North America, well, with the exception of Canada. But they're mainly known for producing uh, baking powder and cake mixes and frozen pizzas. But they also own, you know, Germany's largest beer brewer, uh, one of the largest sparkling wine producers of Europe, and a chain of luxury hotels, which includes some of the most famous luxury hotels uh, on the planet. So those are the five dynasties that I that are the main examples in in, in my book. One of the points you made earlier about Friedrich Flick being one example of someone who is convicted of uh, war crimes that did not stop him from going forward as um, a, a, a thriving businessman after that do you see or, or in your research did you see factors that uh, in society that enabled someone who had been convicted of war crimes to go forward and continue profiting regardless Absolutely. There was no... The continuity that took place from Nazi Germany into West Germany, and also to a large extent East Germany, but of course East Germany was a, the Soviet-occupied uh, zone, which then became, or the eastern part of Germany, which then became East Germany, which is a Soviet satellite state, which was again, which was, which was a continuation to a dictatorian state um, where there was no private property or business anyway. So just to focus on, on West Germany, the continu continuity of power structures and of money of power, but if the power structures that, that were in place in the Third Reich continued unabated through, uh, you know, in West Germany from the 1950s on, I mean, the Federal Republic of Germany was established in 1949. But these vacuum years, as I like to call them, 1945 to 1950, 
or the United States, the United Kingdom, France, and the Soviet Union, you know, occupied Germany, uh, formally occupied Germany. It was there where it went, where the, where, where it went wrong, and yet allowed, in all aspects of German society, um, discontinuity to to happen. Where you know, the United States made a policy decision in in, in the United Kingdom as well, but but the U.S. was really in the driver's seat. The Truman administration just made a policy decision that you know, with the emergence of the Cold War. Um, Nazi Germany and its perpetrators were ancient history and the Nuremberg trials were to be limited and you know what happened was an accelerated handover of you know suspected uh, perpetrators of war crimes uh, as well as Nazi sympathizers back to German authorities now I very much I can very much understand you know, the, the decision that was made as rebuilding West Germany as a viable democratic political actor and state, as well as a prosperous economy with a thriving industry. That I can understand, but where it went wrong was handing over these suspected perpetrators to German authorities, where and for these so-called denazification trials, which denazification is a word you hear thrown around a lot these days because that is, you know, the perverse reason that Vladimir Putin is giving for what he's doing in, in, in Ukraine. But what denazification actually denoted was a, you know, very flawed legal process um, across Germany but mainly in, in, in the Western part, um, which saw, you know, hundreds of thousands, not millions of Germans go scot-free for the crimes they, they had committed during the Third Reich and the sympathies they held. So German society was never properly denazified. That is a myth, and it's particularly a myth that it's not very well known in the United States where it's mainly, you know, the legacy is, oh, we, we got all these scientists and Operation Paperclip, we got all these scientists out and we use them for NASA and Werner von Braun. But for the most part, the, the thinking is that, oh, but German Germany has done such a great, you know, great job of reckoning with its past. And, and um, but as a matter of fact, you know, Again, the power structures continued from from Nazi Germany right into West Germany, and and the silence. And so, to get back to your question, you know, Friedrich Flick was released on good behavior by John J. McCloy, the U.S. High Commissioner for Occupied Germany, in 1950. But within a decade, he was back on top as Germany's wealthiest man, as controlling shareholder of Daimler Benz. There was no one who asked. Also, he saw himself as wrongfully convicted. You know, he was indicted and convicted for war crimes and crimes against humanity. And he saw, you know, this was an American, you know, this was an American court, you know, this was all, this was all kind of America's, it was victor's justice, you know, it was America's revenge uh, on, on having won the war. 
is how he viewed it. And he didn't, you know, he saw himself as innocent and, and all of his associates did as well, but which is indicative of the thinking of, you know, of these men and their, for their entire generation, all the patriarchs, there was zero kind of reflection on what they did. You know, none of those that got convicted, the few that got convicted and not on the, the many that were, um, the, you know, the, the thousands, the tens of thousands that went scot-free. Even into the 70s, when Ferry Portia releases his book, uh, We at Portia, to me, the the freeness with which he felt, and maybe you could just give an overview of what you took away from that book, but what I've seen and even reviews that are still up about that book, it just describes uh, an entrepreneur who struggled to get past those war years and succeed. And it... Sure doesn't touch at all on Rosenberger or the comments that Portia makes in uh, that, um, yeah, fairy Portia makes in the book. And so could you give an overview of, of his book and how, what your research showed about how well it was received and and what you think about why Portia felt confident that he could make those kinds of comments about Rosenberger? It's a, it's a very interesting question. I mean, so Ferry Porsche, as I said earlier, was was Ferdinand Porsche's only son. And when Adolf Rosenberger was Aryan or his shares were Aryanized from the Porsche company by his co-founders, Ferdinand Porsche and Anton Pierre, Ferry Porsche was the one who received the 10% stake in the Porsche car company. Ferry Porsche led the Porsche car design company during World War II when his father and his uncle were leading the Volkswagen factory complex. In central Germany, Ferry Porsche was leading the Porsche car design firm in Stuttgart. As I said earlier, applied in 1938 for the SS and voluntarily entered the SS in 1941. Now, after the war, out of Rosenberger, who at that point had immigrated to the United States, to Los Angeles to be exact, started litigating to be reinstated as a shareholder of the Porsche car design firm. And, you know, judges ordered a, judge in Stuttgart ordered a, an asset freeze. And eventually they came to settlement, which actually was signed, which, which Rosenberger's lawyer agreed with, agreed upon with the lawyers of, Ferdinand and Ferry Porsche and Anton Pierre behind Rosenberger's back because he was in the United States caring for a sick wife. And he, you know, he basically got the, the message. I signed this deal. Um, you know, do you want to have, it was 50,000 Deutschmark and he had the choice between a Volkswagen Beetle or the Porsche, uh, the first Porsche sports car, which Ferry Porsche just, uh, designed. Now, Ferry Porsche during the 1950s and 60s as CEO of the Porsche company when it became, you know, when it first got global fame, uh, surround himself with former high-ranking SS men, one at, at Porsche, at leading positions at Porsche, one being Joachim Piper, who was put in charge of the sales marketing at Porsche, 
and he was hired a month after he was after his death sentence had been commuted by a German American panel uh, for his role in murdering 84 American soldiers at the Malmedy massacre. So it was really some of the most, you know, I mean, truly, truly, not only those war criminals that had gotten away with their crimes, but also those that have been convicted and whose death sentence had been commuted. So Ferry Porsche's first autobiography, We at Porsche, was published in 1976. Interestingly enough, it was only published in the United States in English. The German version wasn't published until four years later. Now, in the American version, or in the English language version, Ferry Porsche write, you know, spews virulent anti-Semitic vitriol about Adolf Rosenberger, saying how Rosenberger, Rosenberger after the war came back to claim payment the second time, and then generalizing it to saying, but you know, this was what, you know, many Jewish families who fled Nazi Germany tried to do, and he gives this other example of a, of, a, of a German business family which fled to Italy's Mussolini and then came back to do the same, and, um, and so forth, and so forth. And interestingly enough, in the German version of the book, those passages are removed. So it's only in the English language version. It is, you know, I don't know why he felt so confident that he thought that he could put those passages in and that nobody could call, in, call him out on that. Um, you know, I asked the Porsche spokesman, Sebastian Rudolf, who, because today you have, he was the chairman of the Ferry Porsche Foundation. Um, again, a, a, you know, a massive global foundation, which is, you know, doing charity in Ferry Porsche's name, but also leaving out his voluntary SS application and entry, his associations with, with, with uh, high-ranking SS officers after the war as Porsche CEO, and also about his the, the anti-Semitic vitriol that he spewed about the Porsche, Porsche company's co-founder, Adolf Rosenberg, which very Porsche himself, even, he wasn't even a co-founder. Um, he was just an heir in many ways, although one would argue that Ferry Porsche is the one who made the Porsche company big, but still. And, you know, he said that the only, you know, only plausible explanation, which of course it isn't, is that Ferry Porsche, you know, uh, was angry about the way that Adolf Rosenberger tried to be reinstated as a shareholder, you know. That's it. And saying, literally saying, that's the only possible explanation, as opposed to saying, well, very Porsche was an anti-Semite or held anti-Semitic thoughts still, you know. So even, you know, Porsche doesn't want to take, the Porsche company doesn't want to take responsibility for very Porsche's legacy still today. But it is also even more fascinating is, and I don't really have an answer for that, is how Ferry Porsche thought he could write that down and and thought he could get away with it. And, and you're right. I mean, nobody, as far as I've known, or as far as I've read it, nobody has called him out on those passages until my book came out. So I don't, you know, 
And it is also interesting how these passages were erased from the German translation. So it's, you know, um, also why he thought it resonated more with an American or an English reading audience than with a German one. It's it's beyond me, truly. I Yeah. Would you give uh, a, an idea uh, or an overview of the years of research that you uh, went into and the depths that were needed to dig into primary sources? Because my my understanding is a lot of what you are bringing to light, you had to dig very deeply to get this, and it's not something that's well-known at all until now. I moved to Berlin in October 2017, from 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 New York, and you know I finished a book in late 2021, so or I would say January 2022. So yeah, it took me more than four years to do research and writing. I did it full time, you know, I freelance on the side a little bit, but um, you know the archives were spread out. They were a lot of them were in Germany. Like the Flick archive is in Berlin, the Quant archive is in Darmstadt, which is south of Frankfurt. A lot of the denazification files were in Munich, or at least regarding Günter Quant and August von Fink. You know, there was a lot in, there were a lot of documents. We were at NARA in, in College Park, Maryland, and in Washington, D.C. And a lot of them, luckily, in my case, were, were digitized. At least the NARA files, a lot of them through Fold 3. I was able to access digitally, which, you know, saved me, I mean, I started to sift through everything, but at least I didn't have to do it by hand because I also would have you know, spent months camping out in Maryland or DC, um, and which is time that I didn't have, obviously. Um, and, you know, and, and yeah, I mean, the, 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 as I said earlier, you know, the reason why I wrote the book is because a lot of the, stories were known to a global audience. They certainly also were known in Germany because what these families do um, in, you know, when, 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 when somebody starts writing, or at least in Germany, when somebody starts writing about their family history or when somebody published an article about the, you know, uh, dark history of, of, beloved patriarch X or exalted company Z is that they commissioned this academic study, which is then they commissioned an historian to investigate their, their family past during the Nazi era, which is then published four years later, but it's only published in, you know, 1200 pages of dense academic German. So in a way, it's a very clever way of pacifying a subject and saying, well, it's all here in the study, of course, very much narrowing the scope of your audience because obviously no one outside Germany can read academic German or most, you know, 99.9% of the people outside Germany can't read dense academic German, let alone, you know, and most of the, the 100 million or so German speakers globally uh, and readers, you know, very few can read or have any interest in reading a dense, uh, dense academic study uh, in German. So, in a way, they're hiding the facts in plain sight, and I wanted to bring that to a to wider audience. Were there also any gaps or what came out to you as secrets that were 
still being hidden, even if archives have been opened? Did you see omissions where you uh, had to look deeper or just left questions open? I mean, I think what astounded me was kind of the breadth of involvement of these families um, or of, of, of the dynasties. I mean, I guess it was for German business, business as a whole, right? But for these families as well, it was just, you know, an all aspect of, of, of collaborating in, uh, with the Nazi regime in modes of production or in modes of expropriation or whether it be or exploitation or or arms production it was just so much more than i had expected and i think that is what also what i is the feedback i've gotten from readers so far is the kind of these being astounded with just how the depth of involvement which was a gap i think in a lot of knowledge of, of, of many people there were at least two other families that are coming to mind for me that you reference in the book, uh, the Ryman's and then the Balson uh, mm-hmm. Cookie Company family. Uh, yeah. Were those uh, examples of, you, you touched on the Ryman's as a, potentially a, a positive example of a path forward. Uh, would you give an overview of their situation and what they've been doing? Sure. So the Ryman's emerged in 2019 as Germany's second wealthiest family behind the BMW Quants. The Ryman's, interesting, interestingly enough, own mainly American or yeah, American brands like Krispy Kreme Donuts, Panera Bread, you know, Curry Green Mountain, um, Pret a Manger. Um, I mean, I can go on and on. It's 7-Up, Snapple, you know, really kind of brands that are kind of Americana brands, you know, in, in many ways. They're very much ingrained into American culture. And they, in 2019, as they emerged as Germany's wealthiest family, the uh, Germany's largest tabloid built had a you know, kind of bombshell cover story on its Sunday newspaper, uh, which revealed the the Nazi activity or the Nazi history of, of their patriarchs, their father and grandfather, Albert Reimann Sr. and Jr., and how they were, you know, ideologically, ideological Nazis were, you know, who abused, were exploited and abused hundreds of forced laborers in their chemicals company in Southern Germany. You know, their, their aunt or their great aunt got married to an assessment. I mean, they were really ideological. They served in the municipality uh, council as, uh, as members of the, of the Nazi party. So these were not, you know, sheer opportunists like Günther Quandt and Herbert Quandt and Friedrich Flick. They were really ideologues. And then, you know, they reported back to the press or they commented to the press that they had already commissioned a study, you know, like as I, what I just said, you know, what they, all these families do. But they weren't aware of their history. But then they, three months later, so the, this report comes out late March 2019 and then three months later, mid-June 2019, they, an interview with them is published 
or with two of the Ryman errors is published in the New York Times, um, which has this kind of schmaltzy headline with like, you know, her father was murdered by the Nazis, then she fell in love with one, which was about the mother of the Ryman heirs. Was, which actually, I mean, the title was schmaltzy, but the, 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 the tale is very tragic, where their father, the father of, 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 of the main Ryman heirs, was this convinced Nazi. But their mother um, was from Jewish descent. And their, her father, Alfred Landecker, was murdered in the Holocaust. And... You know, and, and in response to those revelations, which they were not aware of, they renamed their foundation after Alfred Landecker. And they, so, so I mean, so they descend from a, a one hand, a, page, a perpetrator, and from the other hand, a victim, which is, of course, particularly in German discourse, you know, a bizarre lineage. And they decided to rename their foundation and fund it in perpetuity um, for with $300 million every 10 years, which is a gargantuan amount, gargantuan sum, particularly if you compare it to other foundations with a similar aim and similar motives. And they are still transparent. I mean, okay, they 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 named their foundation after after the um, after their murdered grandfather. They're also still transparent about the ideological convictions uh, uh, of their father, of their Nazi father and grandfather on the other side, as well as the, the abuse that went on in a family company during the um, during the world during uh, the Second World War. Um, and that is the kind of the historical transparency I'm arguing for, where you acknowledge both, where you acknowledge the good and the bad, and where you're not just trying to whitewash it by celebrating somebody's business successes or leaving out their war crimes. And I'd mentioned the the Balson cookie dynasty, right. which you opened the book with, and, and there is no evidence that they have taken those kinds of steps, to my knowledge. Well, like all these other families I write about, they're, they're, they've commissioned a study, which I think is expected sometime summer 2023. You know, we'll see if, it, if the study at the bare minimum gets gets published uh, you know in English as well as German or if they're going to be transparent about on the Balson website about the ideological convictions of their patriarchs which wasn't only the grandfather of 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 the current heirs but also his brothers so the great uncles of, of the current heirs and the reason I start my book with the example of the Balsons is because the main Air, Verena Bausen made these incredibly, you know, ignorant remarks in May 2019. Once um, you get the speech at a marketing conference in Hamburg and, you know, was kind of bragging about her wealth and then, you know, furious reactions on social media um, followed. And then she was asked by, again, by Bild, Germany's largest tabloid, you know, about them. And then she said, well, we treated, well, curious reactions on social media follow up because Bowsen, like 
almost all other German businesses profited from the Nazi regime, profited from, benefited from forced slave labor during the Second World War. And then she kind of dismissed this criticism criticism in, in, in an interview with, with Bild and said, oh, we, we paid, you know, our German employee, we paid forced laborers as well as the German employees, which is completely false and, and erroneous and, and incredibly insulting and, you know, massive moral scandal erupted or massive scandal erupted. And then again, to counter this, you know, to counter this, um, to, to pacify the fury, they also commissioned a study, which is set to be come out, I think sometime. Well, it's set to be finished in 2023. We'll see when it actually probably end, ends up being published. How do you see the current ignorance about different families' histories? Do you see it somehow rooted in the overlooking of war crimes right after the war? Did, did you see in your research where... Uh, or have you gotten a sense about whether or not that helped foster the distortion of history that we have now? It's interesting. I mean, I think to an extent, you know, it's, you know, German society has done a great job at reckoning or has done a good job, a very thorough job of publicly reckoning with the crimes of the Third Reich. It is Germany's most powerful and wealthiest that are sidestepping, sidestepping this reckoning without paying lip service to it. And, you know, of course, you know, the crimes of the Third Reich per- per- permeated throughout German society. So in a way, there's this notion of collective guilt, right? And I think the, these families that I write about very much profit from that notion. They lean on that, that, that notion of collective guilt because, you know, you're dealing with a, in, in wanting to pacify these furies or wanted to, you know, or you you lean on this notion of collective guilt by with the public gets, of course, being inundated with revelations still today with regards to um, Germany's Nazi war crimes. And, you know, it is slightly desensitized to more revelations. And, you know, in a way, more so than the United States, the, the, you know, power is more, is less unassailable in, in Germany. Hierarchy, it's, it's in many ways, it's a deeply, still very reactionary and conservative and, and old fashioned society. And press laws are less free than they are in the U.S., you know. And as 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 polarized as the United States might be, particularly today, you know, everyone can say anything. And he, in Germany, I think there's a lot of fear. Parts of the press, if you're going to report about, you know, Germany's most powerful business dynasties, were not only control some of the countries or the world's most beloved brands, but are also the largest financial donors to the Christian Conservative Party, which was Angela Merkel's party, or or active in politics themselves, or even in one case, you know, support, still support the far right, uh, Germany's far right. There's there's more, there's also less questioning of, of power, you know, in a way that, that in, in the US 
true power on both sides of the aisle is is constantly you know questioned and 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 maybe too much so but you know that's another discussion but 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 you know in, in germany's on the other side of the spectrum there's more there's more respect for power and there's also more fear for power in a way were there any runners up that were families that you almost put in the book but they just didn't make it and that you would look to or point out not really i mean the other families that you know i get asked about a lot i mean there's the main benchmark for it to be included in families that they're still relevant in global business today they still have you know if they don't have an operational company they invest billions to their family offices you know real estate or private equity and art and 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 whatnot but that you know and 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 families that are no longer relevant or don't have really any heirs anymore like the Krups and the Tissons were very well known of having profited from the third Reich, but are no you know either like the Krups don't have heirs anymore or or like the Tissons like the Krupp dynasty has died out or like the Tissons where they are not you know, they, they've they've literally gone and live live in Argentina, and they just like they're living off of their wealth and of private means, and that's it. So there weren't really any runners up. I felt that every family that of of those that are that are relevant today have been included. You know, a lot of people ask me always about Hugo Boss, but there's no family behind Hugo Boss anymore. It's been owned by a private equity company for for decades. And, you know, there is no boss family anymore, so. I've heard you uh, talk about your family uh, experience during the Holocaust and how it's really a miracle that you are here. Right. Uh, I was, and one of the points that you brought up was that your, I think, uh, grandmother was escaping with a family relation. and My aunt. And they were able to escape, but the third companion, who was an artist that was with them, did not. I didn't know if you had any more details about who he or she was. Yeah, yeah, certainly. So my my grandmother and my aunt, who my grandmother, who my aunt is now eighty three, she was three at the time. They fled from the Netherlands to Switzerland. My my grandmother was was a native uh, native Swiss. And they were Jewish, and um, and it's from my father's side. Um, so, so and they and they fled together with this artist called Max van Dam, who's a very well-known artist. If you Google his name, or Max Max van Dam, Max van Dam, yes. Um, you know, they were apprehended, or they were arrested by, they were detained by the Gestapo on the French-Swiss border. Of course, as you know, Switzerland was neutral, so getting into Switzerland was, you know, was a, you were free. You know, you were, you could you could set out to war, and you were you were safe. Um, and they were detained on the French first border by the Gestapo, and you know, Gestapo officer took pity on my grandmother and my aunt and her, you know, young child who was then three. Um, and they were, and he said something along the lines of, you know, go, go stay in a hotel tonight and, and report back tomorrow. 
And then Max van Damme went back to get his luggage. And, you know, he was deported to Salvador uh, extermination camp and was, was murdered there. And, and and my aunt and grandmother made it over the mountains and and into safety and 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 yeah set out to war in my grandmother's hometown of Zurich. Your family experience is that part of what you see as a driving force for you and and the work that you do? No, it, well, it's not. No, um, I mean, from my father's side. Sorry, from my mother. This is my father's side. I mean, and my grandfather from my father's side. Did in Amsterdam for three and a half years. He was Jewish too. From my mother's side, my, you know, which weren't Jewish, but they were equally affected, like tens of millions of other Europeans. You know, where my grandfather tried to sail with his best friend to to England to join the Royal Air Force, and were and and their sailboat flew back to shore, and they were convicted as political prisoners. And my grandfather spent two years. In in, in work as a forced labor in a steel factory in the rural area, and you know came out you know close to death, emaciated. You know he was six foot seven and you know weighed close weighed around fifty uh, weighed around hundred pounds when he when he got out. So it's not you know it that's not a driving force in my work, but it makes me mindful of history. It makes me mindful of where I'm from. I give it, I tell the story in the beginning of the book because, because when I was asked by my bosses in, in, in New York to, to cover the German speaking countries, I was a little bit reluctant because me, like many of, I'm from the late 19, I was born in the late 1980s and I'm probably the last of my generation or the last of, you know, which, which grew up with this, you know, I call it playful antagonism in, in my book, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Germans, you know, but but that is, uh, you know, now, I mean, I'm currently living in Tel Aviv with my German partner, and you know, I lived in Berlin for the past four and a half years, and all my friends were German, you know, my partner is German, and and uh, yeah. I, I love Germany, actually, and I really enjoy enjoyed and enjoy living there. Um, and that is more as an example, but it doesn't so much. It doesn't drive um, me writing. It wasn't an argument for me writing this book, even though you know I I dedicated to the book to my to my grandparents. Sure, I mean they had to live through it. it makes me mindful of history. Um, and maybe, you know, in a way, it also made me more kind of convinced that I wanted to get the story, these stories out, you know, um, because everybody had their own, I mean, you know, the individual stories that come out of, 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 of World War II and, and, the Nazi era, you know, there's they still emerge every day and they're still incredible and they're all over mainland Europe, over the UK, and and of course also in the United States, you know. So it's 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 still these global narratives that are, that emerge daily and that are so important to tell. And you know, because they inform us, we, we can learn so much from them. Do you have plans for another book? 
they do, but but not 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 anytime soon. Um, I just moved to to Tel Aviv to work as a Middle East correspondent, uh, and I'm going to do that for the next couple of years. And then I certainly have ideas for for a second book, and I'm I'm going to do that. And it focuses more actually on the on the United States and in the, and the Netherlands. So uh, it's a different topic. Um, but uh, and again on 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 business dynasties um, that came to shape the U.S. and and politics and business and legislation a lot, particularly in the past decades. Uh, but I'm gonna I'm gonna take it some I'm gonna take some time to uh, uh, yeah to write a proposal and and you know not immediately dive into a second book. Has your idea and definition of justice evolved over the course of your career? Well, it certainly evolved over the course of my of, of doing the research of this book. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm an I'm an eternal optimist, but I do feel I didn't realize how little justice was done following, you know, the end of, of the Third Reich and following the end of the Nazi era and how things could go on, you know, both morally, criminally, on all aspects of justice. You know, and it's incredible what the Nuremberg trials achieved also in terms of, you know, establishing international law um, and making it into a global phenomenon. But particularly when it comes but but if i if if i compare that with you know the few hundreds that were convicted if i compare that to the hundreds of thousands that got off it, and 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 it never faced any repercussions it makes one a little cynic cynical and um you know i think what 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 i find particularly egregious is the is the lack of of moral justice that these men faced or that they could kind of the repercussions. Yeah, legally, sure. Yeah. But that 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 was society-wide in Germany and in many other countries too, for that matter. But I guess I also just find it egregious to how these heirs just don't want to take responsibility for their past, whether this that is because they define themselves solely through their role as heirs, you know, and they send in the shadows of their fathers and grandfathers' achievements, and they that's where they derive their identity from. Or, or perhaps and, because they fear that it may harm their business interests if they're fully transparent or fully own up or fully take responsibility for the acts of their fathers and grandfathers as opposed to whitewashing them. Um, but I find that, I mean, it is again, that is a reason in a way, the lack of, of moral justice is also the reason why I wrote the book. So it certainly has evolved, yeah. I guess I was naive about the concept, you know. I was I was naive about the concept of justice more than before going into the research and writing of this book. To learn more, you can follow David DeYoung on Twitter and Instagram. And there will be a link in the show notes to Mr. DeYoung's website. If you'd like to share your thoughts about this or any of the other podcast episodes, please leave your comments online and tag Warfare of Art and Law podcast. Or you can email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com or leave a voice message 
at 1-929-260-4942. Until next time, this is Stephanie Drotty bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi, everyone. It's Stephanie. And every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate, all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com.